0: So I would now like to bring on um, Dr. James and Sim on for today's talk. So welcome, guys. Thank you very much for being with us today. And Iz is going to work the magic for the screen share and everything. And this is where I'll drop off into the background. And uh, yeah, leave it to you guys. What's
1: up? Hello. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Great to be here. Um, Seem and I are going to be discussing lifestyle strategies to support uh, overall health and the immune system. Uh, and a lot of this research is also coming from, from our book, The Immunity Fix. So this, these are the risk factors, relative risk of death for COVID-19, and what I want to point out here is that every single one of these risk factors except age is modifiable through diet, lifestyle, things like that. So you know, you can't fix old age but you can certainly fix low vitamin D levels. So what's interesting if you have a, a severe vitamin D deficiency, which is essentially 12 nanograms per ml or less, your risk of having um, or dying from COVID-19 is about 14.7 fold higher. And the risk of having a poor outcome is six fold higher. So you can see here, we, I sort of listed this from top down. But if you look at the nutrients, vitamin D deficiency, selenium deficiency increases the risk of dying uh, by about fivefold from COVID 19, and then zinc deficiency by about twofold. So, D deficiency is extremely prevalent. There's about 1 billion people globally that are vitamin D deficient, and about half the global population is actually vitamin D insufficient. So, definitely get your vitamin D levels checked, make sure they are optimized. And we t- what we discuss in the book too, that um, things like metabolic syndrome, elevated blood pressure, glucose, elevated waist circumference, high triglycerides, they all contribute to a worse uh, COVID-19 outcome. And you can fix metabolic syndrome within weeks of essentially restricting, refined carbohydrates and seed oils. Now, th- what this graph is showing is the severity of the common cold. And these circular, uh, the circles here are in adults. And the squares are in children. So, what you can see here is essentially if you give a one gram dose of vitamin C, there's about a 7% reduction in the severity of the common cold. But if you give four grams, there's a 20% reduction. So, there's about a threefold better outcome just simply going from one to four grams. And you can see this, a similar dose response in children. And then if you actually use linear regression modeling, which is essentially not not from clinical trials, but you're extrapolating based off of the the four clinical trials, um, in order to get a 50% reduction in the severity of the common cold, you may need to take 10 grams of vitamin C. And really vitamin C is something that has a short half-life and really should be dosed every two hours to maintain uh, elevated blood levels. The duration of the common cold, we see the same thing where elevated levels of vitamin C give better reductions. And then again, we're not hundred percent sure on what will give us a 50% reduction, but based on um, linear regression, you know, we could need up to 18 grams. So essentially you have a tolerable upper intake of vitamin C that has been set um, for some people who develop diarrhea. So essentially two grams is the upper limit for safety for vitamin C for adults. And that's only because diarrhea you start to experience, some people start to experience it at that level. You do have to be careful with high doses of vitamin C in people who are susceptible to oxalate kidney stones or who have kidney disease. And really, um, you know, probably don't want to be taking more than 500 milligrams of vitamin C at one dose. So what seems to be optimal is probably 250 to 500 milligrams multiple times per day. What you can see here is, Uh, if you just give yourself a therapeutic dose when you're sick, you actually don't get a significant benefit. It's only the people who take vitamin C on a regular basis and then also add therapeutic doses, get a significant reduction in the duration of the common cold. And that makes sense, right? So it's something that we should be making sure we're hitting optimal levels uh, on a daily basis. And then if you get sick, you also want to increase that. So in summary, vitamin C essentially may not provide benefits if you only take it when you're sick it should be something that you are taking on a daily basis and making sure you're getting probably at least 500 milligrams per day um, and you can split that up in divided doses and so it's just it's also mimicking how we would have gotten vitamin c from an evolutionary perspective we wouldn't just like you wouldn't breathe all your oxygen in one sitting you wouldn't drink all your water in one sitting you shouldn't be taking all your vitamin c in one dose so quickly on zinc so, zinc lozenges, they have probably been shown to reduce the duration of the common cold more than any other type of supplement. It does need to be started within twenty four hours of symptoms and it should be taken every two hours and in order to get benefits, the ionic amount of zinc that should be per dose should be at least eighteen milligrams. This may shorten the duration of the common cold up to six to seven days if dosed appropriately, and the daily dose has to be above seventy five milligrams. The problem is very few. Of uh, brands uh, over the counter in the US market, at least, um, they do not have effective uh, ionic zinc dispersion. So I'll show you that here. The pH in the mouth is five. So at this level, you really it's zinc acetate and gluconate that have the good bioavailability. As you start adding glycine to the zinc, um, you start getting reduced bioavailability. These are just some of the hallmark clinical studies showing anywhere from a 1.3 to seven day reduction in the common cold using zinc lozenges, anywhere from about 80 milligrams all the way up to 207 milligrams per day. As you can see here, the benefit in regards to the days that you can reduce the common cold goes up as the dose of ionic zinc goes up. Really, this 18 milligram response dose curve is where you're going to see the optimal reductions where you can get six to seven days. This is using zinc gluconate as well. And zinc acetate, a little bit further down, has some benefits. You can get about a four day reduction in the common cold, um, but it's not as effective. If if you just bump that up to about 18 milligrams, that seems to be optimal. This uh, was a meta-analysis kind of breaking out the total daily dose of zinc. And if the total daily dose was less than 75 milligrams, there was no significant benefit. But if you got the daily dose above 75, there was a significant benefit. Onto a meta-analysis of four randomized controlled trials using black elderberry. This was in three studies uh, looking at influenza, one with the common cold. These studies actually looked at standardized elderberry extract. Uh, essentially they were standardized to about 12 to 15% anthocyanins. So most supplements just spike uh, their supplements like elderberry juice, which isn't going to have the high anthocyanin content and give you the benefits. It has to be standardized to, uh, at least 10% anthocyanins typically. And what we see here is we see a significant two to four day reduction in the duration of influenza and the common cold. This was the NASIS study that tested almost 300 elderly patients in a, a multi center randomized controlled trial looking at anacetylcysteine given at 600 milligrams twice a day in either the elderly or um, people I believe it was 55 to 65 that had some type of chronic disease and they started N-acetylcysteine just prior to the cold and flu season, and they gave it for about six months. What they saw was the severity and the incidence of influenza-like illness was cut in half. There was about a two-day reduction in the duration of influenza as well, which was highly statistically significant. And then jumping back to vitamin D, technically not a vitamin. It's a pro-hormone, so your body has to convert vitamin D into calcidiol and then into calcitriol. Calcitriol is the active hormone that actually binds all the vitamin D receptors and that activates about 2000 genes. You can't, it's very difficult to get vitamin D in the diet. You can get some through fish, pastured eggs, cod liver oil. Um, But a lot of people, since they're so deficient, uh, most people need a supplement particularly in the winter. So we're already covered um, you know, how globally vitamin D deficiency is a huge problem um, and but the important thing too here is that magnesium is required to activate vitamin D. So your own cells, certain cells can actually um activate vitamin D. They have the enzyme, but the enzyme needs magnesium. So um prostate cells, epithelial cells, they can actually produce their own active vitamin D, but they still need the magnesium. Most of your active vitamin D, though, is coming through the enzymes um, where, through the liver and the kidneys, and they also require magnesium. So you see this right here, we get vitamin D through the diet, sunlight, or supplements. Then 25-hydroxylase takes the D3 to calcidiol, which needs magnesium. And then you have the 1-alpha-hydroxylase that activates uh, the calcidiol to calcitriol in the kidneys. And then you know colon, prostate, lungs, um, they have cells too that can uh, form active vitamin D. So this is the typical pattern we see with uh, flu activity based on uh, the month and based on the vitamin D level. So as you can see here, vitamin D is in nanograms per ml. As you get closer to the winter months, you start dropping to below 20, which is here is where you're getting deficient. And this is exactly where influenza starts peaking. So it's an inverse relationship. As D levels drop, influenza uh, increases. And then you see Essentially, um, as D levels come back up, influenza cases drop. So we've known about that for a long time. That relationship. What about the clinical evidence, actually from randomized control trials? There's a couple meta analyses that have tested vitamin D, or you know, summarized the studies that have looked at vitamin D. Essentially, um, the overall results have shown about a 36 percent reduction in the risk of. Uh, Know, respiratory tract infections. If you're doing once daily dosing, you can increase that reduction to 50%. So essentially what uh, these meta-analyses indicate is that once daily dosing of vitamin D is better than once weekly. What about actual clinical studies, um, either correlative or clinical in COVID-19? The correlation is very strong, about 82% of hospitalized COVID-19 patients have D deficiency. Um, if someone has a D level less than 20, they are twice as likely to test positive for SARS-CoV-2 versus having a D level above 55. And then compared to a vitamin D level of 30 to 40 nanograms per ml or higher, those who have a D level less than 30 are two to threefold higher uh, for risk of dying and t- twice as likely to have a poor COVID outcome. And then individuals who have that severe vitamin D deficiency they, they again, have almost a 15-fold higher risk of dying and six times more likely to have a poor COVID outcome. Now, what about the actual clinical trials in patients with COVID-19? This was an actual study in uh, 40 asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 positive patients. This was published in the BMJ, 14-patient randomized control trial. Um, They were smart and actually looked at people who had D-deficiency, and they gave them good, level, good amounts of vitamin D. So this was 60,000 IUs per day in a nanoliquid for seven days. And they continued that if the D level was still below 50. So they, they targeted a D level to get it to 50 nanograms per ml or higher. And essentially, the individuals who were in the vitamin D group, um, they had basically three times as many patients that were SARS-CoV-2 negative by day 21 which was statistically significant. So what this study suggests is that if you have mild to asymptomatic COVID-19, uh, vitamin D supplementation may help you clear the virus quicker because more people are testing negative after three weeks versus those who did not receive vitamin D. Other promising interventions, calcifediol is a vitamin D prescription analog. There was a small randomized controlled trial that essentially showed um, almost a virtual elimination of having to go to the ICU in COVID-19 patients. Um, whereas people who did not get this vitamin D analog, it's a partially activated vitamin D metabolite. Um, they actually, about 50% ended up in the ICU. There have been small studies looking at glutathione, an acetylcysteine and alpha-lipoic acid so, typically, you want to use liposomal glutathione for better absorption. Uh, your typical glutathions don't absorb very well. The other way around that is N acetylcysteine. It's a precursor to cysteine, which is the rate limiting amino acid to form glutathione. Doesn't mean that necessarily it's going to uh, create glutathione. It could, if you're increasing cysteine, that might lead to taurine uh, being formed. The body's going to put that cysteine to where it needs to go. But typically, you will see elevations in glutathione when you supplement with N acetylcysteine. And essentially, there's been case reports of giving COVID-19 patients who are having difficulty breathing two grams per day, either IV or by mouth glutathione, and it significantly improves breathing. And then they also added alpha-lipoic acid and acetylcysteine too, which seemed to increase the benefits. There was one preprint study looking at IV alpha-lipoic acid. They gave 1,200 milligrams per day, and it cut mortality in half, just missing statistical significance. And then there's a lot of data coming out that melatonin may help as well. It's been associated with uh, 83% lower risk of dying in intubated COVID patients. If people supplement with melatonin and supplementing with melatonin has been associated with a 30 to 50% reduction in testing positive for SARS-CoV-2. And then there was a, a, a case report of 10 COVID pneumonia patients. They were given anywhere from 36 to 72 milligrams per day and four divided doses of melatonin that cut hospital stay by five days. None required mechanical ventilation, whereas similar COVID-19 pneumonia patients had about a 26 to 40% rate of requiring mechanical ventilation. And none died who, who were given the melatonin, whereas 20 to 35% died who did not get the melatonin. So not uh, you know your gold standard randomized controlled trial to prove, um, but Based on the correlative studies in this, you know, this 10 cases, it seems pretty plausible that this fairly, extremely safe, really, supplement um, should be given larger clinical trials to confirm these benefits. Other promising supplements include selenium. Uh, there's been a, a, at least two or three clinical studies that have given selenium on top of people who already have adequate selenium status, anywhere from 200 to 300 micrograms per day. And that has been shown to enhance the innate and adaptive immune system, including natural killer cells, B cells, and T cells. Uh, people who get RNA viruses who are selenium deficient do not fare as well. So there is a RNA virus called Coxsackie virus, which causes hand, foot, and mouth in children, and isn't really a huge deal in adults. But if you are deficient in selenium, it will lead to cardiomyopathy and can kill you. So essentially what this shows is that you, if you are deficient in just one nutrient, it can turn a non virulent virus into something that could potentially kill you. And it's very likely that these things apply with COVID-19 as well. Quercetin, uh, a lot of people have shown a lot of interest in quercetin lately, um, being a zinc quote unquote zinc ionophore, um, increasing sort of say, driving zinc into the cell, whether that's the main mechanism or not, doesn't, you know, is still, I think to be said. But there is uh, some data. This this was a clinical study that I think ate 500 milligrams twice a day in cyclists, and it did significantly reduce the incidence of upper respiratory tract infections. Really quick, uh, diet has a huge impact on our immune system. When it comes to bioavailable nutrients, uh, animal foods are uh, significantly higher. So for example, And this isn't to say plant foods cannot provide certain nutrients. You just need to understand where the nutrients are bioavailable. So for example, if you look at the bioavailability of iron from spinach, it's only 2%. Iron bioavailability from red meat is about 20%. So even though spinach on the outside looks like it's very high in iron, it is not. Spinach is a good source of magnesium and potassium, uh, as well as folate, And so really here, the reason why we're putting animal foods on the bottom is because this is where you're going to get your B12, your zinc, your protein, your iron, and then you get good amounts of choline and carotenoids with the egg yolks. And you also get good amounts of selenium. And then as you move further up, you're getting your omega-3s. As you move further up, you're getting some of your copper and then the fruits, berries, vegetables, a little bit of dairy for calcium. Organs are extremely important for copper as well. Muscle meat should always be paired with organs. You know, Typically one ounce of liver per day is perfect to get, give people optimal levels of copper and to balance out the high zinc to copper ratio. And then further up, you, you see the healthy fats, the monounsaturated fats through avocados, extra virgin olive oil. There was a preprint in about 300 uh, severe COVID patients that used raw honey plus black ground black human seeds, which, which reduced mortality in those people by over 80%, reduced hospitalizations, increased the clearance of the virus. Uh, that was actually registered in, by the NIH, or uh, on the NIH website. And so it's just, uh, they're just, it, it's a preprint, hasn't been peer reviewed or published yet, but that's pretty promising. Herbs and spices have all these uh, antiviral effects. Turmeric has anti-inflammatory effects. Salt is used by the immune system for stomach acid, for killing viruses, particularly the chlorides for hypochlorous acid. Hydrochloric acid helps you digest food and be able to absorb all these nice nutrients. So that's the key, right? If you don't have good salt, there's been, there's been a couple studies that show people go, that go on low salt diets, their stomach acid goes down, the pH of the stomach goes up. You don't digest your food and you don't absorb all these nutrients well. So you you can eat all the nutrients you want. If you can't digest them with good stomach acid, you're not going to get the full benefits. So uh, this is sort of recapping uh, the diet that we proposed in our book, at least 12 ounces of red meat to get that iron B12 zinc and protein, and then build off of that because it's very difficult to get bioavailable iron um, in foods. So that's why pastured red meat is extremely important. You cap that off with twice a week, um, wild salmon to give you some omega threes and you can throw in either, you know, if you don't like wild salmon, lobster, crab, things like that are, are good sources of omega threes as well. I like, most people do not like the taste of organs. So what I do is I typically buy them as blends as um, essentially 75% muscle meat, 25% liver and heart. Heart's going to give you CoQ10. Liver is a great source of folate vitamin A, not beta carotene, and then copper. Pastured eggs, typically I eat about three pastured eggs per day to give give me the lutein, zeaxanthin, selenium, and iodine. And then if you do not cook dark greens with olive oil and also consume it with a little fat, the bioavailability of those carotenoids are significantly reduced. So, you know, a pastured egg can have its bioavailability of lutein and zeaxanthin is about tenfold higher in compared to greens that are not cooked in fat or consumed with fat. So you got to make sure you do that. And then for vitamin C, typically I will consume things like camu camu powder um, and just put that in some type of yogurt. If you want to be more plant-based, that's fine. You can add in things like beans, wild rice, unrefined whole grains. Really quick, this is a figure from the immunity effects, just showing the importance of salt from the acid perspective, the hydrochloric acid helping you digest food, kill pathogens that are coming in from the diet, absorb nutrients. The hypochlorous acid is secreted by neutrophils to kill pathogens. And then once that happens, the body has this, uh, it creates a substance called taurine chloramine, which is essentially taurine combined with chloride from salt that helps to calm that inflammatory cytokine storm. And then when it comes to sort of exogenous sources of salt and how that impacts immunity, Gargling salt has been shown to improve sore throats, reduce mucus, kill pathogens, inhaling salt, breaks up mucus in the lungs, improve, improves breathing and immune function. And then there have been meta-analyses on nasal saline irrigations that have been shown to reduce upper respiratory tract infections. Um, really good evidence too on chronic rhinosinusitis and allergies. And I'm going to let my co-author Seem take over from here. Let me just... Uh... Stop sharing.
0: You I'm should have control now. Take over. Yeah. Okay. Can you see me? Yep. You're good. Awesome. Good. So, um, uh, I'm a talk more about some other strategies, how you can like strengthen your immune system and uh, yeah, keep yourself more resilient. And I'm sure that a lot of people have you heard about this concept called the hormesis and uh, hormesis is basically like what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And it's a very ubiquitous phenomenon in all living organisms. And it's almost like an essential thing needed for uh, just survival. And uh, yeah, uh, and it also has an immune immune strengthening uh, benefit in a lot of studies. So what hormesis is, is this dose specific response to any particular like a stressor, toxin, infection, or uh, yeah like so, so, to some sort of in, in environmental damage. And uh, in small amounts, it's uh, very beneficial because it you know turns on the body's defense systems and elicits this beneficial response. Uh, but after a while, as the kind of dose increases or the amount of stress also increases, then the gains are gonna become more diminished and eventually it's gonna you know, become harmful and damaging. So that's where you actually get weaker. So if you practice this hormetic dose of any particular like a stressor, then uh, you will gradually increase your body's tolerance against similar stressors like exercise. Like you lift weights at the gym, you initially you know, get weaker a little bit, but after your body re- rests and recovers, you come back stronger and you build muscle as a way to kind of prepare for future demands. And that's how hormesis works. Uh, one of the best like examples of hormesis is uh, the sauna, and uh, sauna is essentially like um, it's a hyper, it's, it mimics hyperthermia, it raises your body temperature, and uh, there are a lot of health benefits associated with this kind of a uh, stress response. And you know, one of the best stu- one of the best studies about it. Tim, can you hear me? I just want to jump in quickly. It seems like you're not on presentation mode, so we, um, we're we seeing your, the slides before and after. So yeah, everyone... just,
1: yeah, okay. just hit, you can just hit play from current slide. Um, See that button at the top of the PowerPoint? Play from, yeah, right there. Yeah. Hit that. Did you hear that? Yeah. Okay, huh. Hmm. Wait a minute.
0: Um, I'm sharing the wrong screen.
1: <laughs> I can see half of the
0: slide. Yeah, I'm going to try to, um, Sorry to interrupt. No, no,
1: it's, I'm going to drag it over. Okay. Can you see it now? Uh, there might be a delay. I don't see, I just see you right now.
0: I uh, Sim, I think you have stopped sharing. Okay. There you yes. go.
1: Perfect. You got it now.
0: Uh, you see the entire thing, or well, we see two slides at the moment: um, yeah. your current and your next. Yes, you. now you're good. Okay, <laughs> good. Thanks, Tim. Uh, well, yeah. So saunas. This is a one of, like Finnish study, which is um, you know one of the original places for the saunas, and um, they discovered that they, like people who took the sauna like four times a week or more than four times a week had like a 63% reduced uh, heart disease mortality compared to those who did it only once a week. And uh, yeah, like I would imagine that the health benefits are much greater compared to those people who don't take any kind of a sauna. And even like two to three times a week is uh, does reduce uh, the cardiovascular disease mortality quite a lot. So what essentially happens when you are like exposed to the heat is that your body like triggers these heat shock proteins. And heat proteins are just these molecules that are supposed to help the body deal with the stress and the heat. And heat uh, shock proteins do many things, like they start uh, DNA repair processes, they fix misfolded the proteins, and they promote like things, autophagy, uh, which means like cell recycling, and they also have like a f- beneficial effect on the antioxidant defense systems like uh, glutathione. Uh, some additional things that happen are better blood flow, which is, you know, again good for cardiovascular function, uh, and this is reduced associated with reduced risk of heart disease. Um, it improves insulin sensitivity, which is you know important for uh, preventing metabolic syndrome, which is also like a huge you know risk factor for any kind of infection and COVID as well. Decreases inflammation, which will like reduce body pain, physical pain, soreness, and uh, also is associated with the reduced risk of uh, dementia. There is like this um, elimination of toxins and uh, pathogens as well that occurs which is, um, you know, part of it has to do with the heat that, you know, some, um, let's say, bacteria and some bacterial infections, they don't just survive the heat, but uh, some viruses as well, like um, the first uh, SARS virus has been shown to be eliminated by high amounts of heat. Like, of course, it's very hard to uh, mimic the same, uh, the same amount of heat as in these studies with just the sauna, but um, there is like a huge... Uh, epidemiolo- epidemiological uh, association as well with uh, reduced the risk of influenza with uh, sauna therapy and uh, other diseases. And uh, but there was also the problem that you know what makes something deadly is the dosage. So if you take too much heat, you take too much sauna, then you could also experience these diminishing returns and on the right you can see like some of the negative side effects of too much heat that can be like dehydration you lose a lot of uh, salt uh, and uh, other minerals through your sweat when you're in the sauna heat exhaustion is very possible danger especially if you're like not uh, tolerant of the heat uh, arrhythmia because of uh, the heat as well as like losing magnesium and sodium uh, increased stroke that can happen if you're like in high amounts of heat for too long and of course like burn injuries uh, themselves so uh, yeah the poison is always in the dose and uh, some moderate heat exposure with the sauna is uh, one of the best things, I think, uh, for uh, reducing the risk of these influenza type viruses and the common cold. And uh, you don't even have to like do it like, you know, four times a week. It's very difficult for most people who don't have access to their own saunas. Uh, but, you know, I personally think that, you know, any, any amount is better than nothing. And uh, even if you can do it only like once a month, it's still pretty uh, damn worth it. And there are some other things that also mimic the sauna, like exercise turns also these heat shock proteins on and uh, promotes blood flow. So sauna is like an exercise mimetic, and they kind of share some of the benefits with each other. Uh, moving on with um, the cold, so um, winter swimming or you know cold water exposure has also been shown to be very beneficial for the antioxidant defense system, system. And you know this very old study, even in the 90s. Uh, show that um, winter swimmers have like this uh, higher amount of glutathione and uric acid, which does suggest that, you know, they're more protected against oxidative stress. And again, like the cold itself is a trigger for these uh, defense systems, kind of this hormetic uh, dose. And what happens with cold is that the cold turns on the cold shock proteins, uh, which do like a similar job as the heat shock proteins. They kind of protect against the cold and damage. And they also turn on some other longevity genes in the body, like voxoproteins. Uh, and uh, one of the kind of unique things about cold is that it activates brown fat tissue. And uh, brown fat is uh, more metabolically active than this regular white fat that is uh, just there for calorie, <laughs> calorie consumption. So brown fat is also makes you more insulin sensitive and your body can tap into it to produce its own heat. Whereas the white fat that is, you know, the result of just overeating and uh, poor diet that is only used for this calorie maintenance. So they can't really use it for heat production. Whereas the brown fat that you produce uh, with things like cold is um, kind of healthier in general and makes you more insulin sensitive. The cold also uh, decreases inflammation similar to the heat. And um, similar to the heat, it's also been shown to kind of have a neuroprotective effect and uh, reduce soreness and increased glutathione increases your metabolic rate as well increases also these these, uh, neurotrophic factors in the brain like uh, dopamine and uh, norepinephrine that just makes you alert and makes you feel like very energized. The kind of negative side effects of too much cold is that um, it does reduce muscle anabolism. So muscle anabolism is the process of you know growing muscles and tissue Uh, so if you're you know chronically exposed to too much cold then uh, your body isn't gonna it's going to be very almost difficult to build muscle, and uh, that can be like um, it can hinder, like some, um, I don't know, fitness goals or something. And it's, it's not like recommend, it's not recommended to take like a cold uh, bath or ice bath right after a workout because the study, studies show that it uh, reduces like exercise performance and uh, reduces muscle growth as a result of that. So there are like some times of the day where it's better to do like the cold or heat, and you don't want to be doing it too much. And neuropathy is a uh, potential damage you know, to your fingers where your nerve damage and uh, in the toes and uh, fingers uh, that is just like uncomfortable and uh, yeah can be problematic and then if you do too much cold then uh, I think it will also eventually just start to suppress the immune system if it becomes like an overbearing stressor and um, from my own personal experience I can say that you know it's not the cold itself like if you're in the cold water then you're not really you're, the, the cold water isn't there gonna that's gonna get you it's more more often than not like the wind like if you come out of the cold water then you're like in this um, kind of vulnerable state your body has already like you know uh wasted a lot of resources dealing with the cold water and then you come out of the water then there's the wind is gonna you know get you and uh that is where you may potentially get sick or catch a cold as a result, as a result of that so if you do you know get exposed to the if you do decide to do some cold plunging and uh, then um Make sure you're kind of when you're out of the water, then kind of cover yourself up quite quite fast. Uh, studies also show that the viruses are like more stable in the cold, uh, which may also explain why there is a seasonal aspect to like these uh, viruses that they're more predominant during the winter season, uh, whereas like the heat again like high temperature sunlight uh saunas you know that sort of thing is destroying the viruses then the cold may actually preserve them for longer and of course like too much cold will also lower thyroid and uh, slow down the me- metabolism so to say and can cause like some hormonal imbalances because of the uh, stress. Uh, it, moving on with uh, fasting or the like medical term would be um, like infection-induced anorexia which is a uh, like a natural response of like a, basically all animals to stop eating when they're sick and uh, the hypothesis is that uh, This is just a response for the body to kind of preserve the resources and to save the resources to deal with the infection. And yeah, like I think most people would also get like this decreased appetite when they are sick, and uh, they just don't want to this stop eating to a certain extent. So this is where this intermittent fasting also has like some immunomodulatory effects and immunostrengthening effects. And some. Time, you know, there's many things that happen during fasting. There, you know, it's a linear process. So the uh, the longer you fast, the kind of the diff- the different effects you're gonna get. So uh, the first few hours once you stop eating is where you're just your blood sugar tends to drop, and um, the this is where your your body is burning through the you know uh, initial glycogen stores as and the blood sugar, and after a while, after about like twelve hours or so that's where your body has fully depleted like the liver glycogen and as a result of that the ketone bodies start to rise which means that you're going to start to burn more fat as well and fat burning increases around 18 to 24 hours Uh, around 28 hours or so the liver glycogen is fully depleted and uh, this is kind of the signal for your body to tap into like deep ketosis and also uh, upregulate the process of autophagy which um, has immuno strengthening effects like eliminating some pathogens and uh, some even in some particular viruses as well Uh, but you know the longer you fast the more dangerous it it can become like you know studies do show that you know around 48 hours or so um, you start to develop some mild metabolic acidosis and um, the peak autophagy tends to be around like 72 hours uh, in 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 our opinion Uh, because like the long, it's not like the, the longer you fast, the more beneficial it's gonna get. It's uh, everything has like this point of diminishing returns, and uh, around day five is where you're gonna probably see like the lowest blood sugar and the highest ketones. And uh, studies find that, that around day ten, your blood volume will drop by about fifty percent, which um, is just a result of this calorie deprivation and uh, you know infection-induced anorexia. Uh, autophagy. It's, you know A lot of people have heard about autophagy and its health benefits, which is true, autophagy has a lot of health benefits, but uh, there's also a lot of studies showing that it has negative side effects, so it's more of like a, this uh, double-edged sword, uh, that you know the beneficial side of autophagy is that it lowers oxidative stress, promotes DNA repair, uh, eliminates these old worn-out cells, uh, stabilizes chromosomes, uh, destroys some pathogens. But uh, the negative side effects that may also happen is that um, some of the like malignant cells or po- possible uh, v- viruses can also survive as a result of this uh, hormetic stress. So if you're signaling your body to be in this starvation state or this faster state, then uh, some of the, you know, the viruses also kind of strengthen their uh, defenses and they, you know, they adapt to the stress and as a result, they get stronger. So it's harder to eliminate them afterwards. Uh, moving on with exercise, exercise ease. Quite amazing for the immune system, especially like regular exercise before you get sick. So, if you're already sick, then exercising on top of that is probably going to make it worse. Uh, whereas, if you're exercising beforehand, then you're keeping yourself uh, more resilient. And exercise essentially increases these um, neutrophils, these immune cells, uh, monocytes, uh, natural killer cells, cytotoxic T cells, and as a result, you experience this higher immunosurveillance. So, your body is uh, basically. Is Detecting any potential pathogen that is sneaking in faster, and is can essentially eliminate it before it can uh, replicate and before it can set in, and also exercise reduces uh, systemic inflammation, which is also beneficial for um, general health and um, preventing like autoimmunity and things. But exercise uh, is also you know problematic if you do it too much. So uh, studies find that um, overtraining exercising too much exercising too intensely uh, that can actually increase your risk of uh, respiratory tract infections by 2 to 6 fold whereas um, moderate exercise reduces that risk by 40 to 50% so sedentary people uh, they don't like really they don't really experience these benefits but uh, moderate exercise um, does so and uh, how much is overtraining how much is too much that depends a lot on the individual like uh, everyone has a different tolerance to stress uh, someone who is, you know, used to doing exercise almost every day, then they can probably get away with a lot. Whereas someone who is already sedentary, then uh, their t- threshold or their tolerance is also much lower. So you also I always have to know what is your kind of subjective, yeah, like threshold that you can tolerate these stressors and uh, adjust your uh, routine uh, based on that. But generally, like exercising at least like three times a week is, I think, uh, very beneficial. And overtraining would be something like, you know, doing one-hour sessions every day or one-and-a-half-hour sessions five times a week or something, and you're also not sleeping enough, you're also eating a bad diet and that sort of thing, so it's kind of compounding. You have to also take into account things like sleep and um, the general diet. And uh, yeah, that's that's it. So yeah, we're gonna give a brief overview about the Immunity Fix, so you can check it out on uh, Amazon.